You're listening to the Redeemer Theological Academy with Pastor Brian Cashelmeyer of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Los Alamos, New Mexico. On the Redeemer Theological Academy, we mine the riches of the Scripture and the Church Fathers and find in them Jesus, our Savior, our Redeemer. Here's the Academy with Pastor Cashelmeyer. Welcome back to the Redeemer Theological Academy. Now, in our last lecture, we were talking about Isaiah 53. Today's lecture, we will complete Isaiah 53. And we'll have enough time to go ahead and begin chapter 54. We have a lot to talk about, so let's go ahead and get started. Now, picking up again at verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Now we want to be clear again that it is Yahweh's will that the Christ be crushed. This is the servant of Yahweh, the one who comes to be an offering for the guilt of all of our sins, the one who bears our sins, who carries our sins away. Now, if we talked about before, remember that Luther was saying in this passage, we not only want to know about the historical facts of the passion, the suffering of Christ, his death, his burial, but also the function of the passion that he did not suffer for his own sins. You see, he had no guilt. He had no sin. But our sin, our guilt, was imputed to him. And he was condemned, condemned to death. But for our sake, he died. He rose again, taking away our sins so that he was crucified for our transgressions and raised again for our justification, that we would be participants by faith in the remission of sins and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out upon us as our high priest. Remember, he is both the priest and the sacrifice. He's the one who carries and bears our sins just like Aaron did. He's the one who carries and bears our sins, just like the scapegoat did, taking our sin away. Now, it is in this passage that we learn the significance of his offering. It is his offering of himself that clears us, cleanses us. It justifies us. That is, declares us righteous in the sight of God. Now let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53 at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge of him, the righteous one, my servant, many will be justified. Now that is, accounted righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities. Now, again, we understand the fact and the function. He was crucified, but he was crucified and died for us, for you and for me. 
that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He bears our iniquities. Now notice here about this righteousness. The righteousness that we have by faith is not an act of righteousness that we have achieved by the law. Instead, it is a passive righteousness that we have received by the promise of Christ. It is received by faith. Now, talking about this justification, this way in which we now have peace in our conscience, Luther addresses it this way, saying that it's by his knowledge, which Luther notes is a very lovely text. It's by his knowledge that we are justified. So those who confess their sins have been born by him and are the righteous. Here Luther notes the definition of righteousness is wonderful. Luther notes it's not like what the sophists say, that is the scholastics, those who seem so wise in their own eyes. It's not like them who say that righteousness is the fixed will to render to each his own. Instead, Luther notes that here, God declares to us that righteousness is the knowledge of Christ, the one who bears our iniquities. To know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know salvation. To know salvation is to know that he is the Savior who takes our sins away. He dies for us. He bears our iniquities. So Luther says, whoever will, therefore, know and believe in Christ as the bearer of sins, and he shall be justified, that is, declared righteous. Now, furthermore, Luther goes on to say that this knowledge cannot come about by the means of any law, moral or civil, or even the divine law, but only by means of the gospel. The message of the cross, the announcement that Christ is our salvation, that Christ is our righteousness. There is no other way to know this. Thus, Luther rejoices in what he calls a new definition of righteousness. Righteousness is the knowledge of Christ. And what is Christ? Well, he is the person who bears all our sins. You see, we are justified, we are declared righteous by the knowledge of Him, the one who bears our iniquities. This is a revealed knowledge that comes to us in the proclamation of the gospel. When it is heard in the word that is written, when it is heard in the word that is spoken, it's that word of justification. That God is the one who justifies. Jesus is the righteous one. And by the knowledge of him, we have a different righteousness, an external, an alien righteousness, one that is not our own. It is, again, not an achieved righteousness, but a received righteousness from the promise that God gives to us in the gospel. Thus, Luther says, the word sets forth another righteousness through the consideration and promises of the scripture, which cause this faith to be accounted 
for righteousness. This is our glory to know for certain that our righteousness is divine, in that God does not impute our sins. Therefore, our righteousness is nothing else than knowing God. And again, to know God is to know Christ. For when we know the Son, we know the Father. And it is in this that we are counted, that we are declared innocent, righteous, that our faith is accounted to us as righteousness, that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to us to become our own. Our sin becomes his sin. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. This doctrine puts an end to all self-righteousness, for it's only the righteousness of Christ that counts for anything in God's sight. This doctrine itself gives all the glory properly to Jesus, for He is the one who alone is holy and righteous, that we glorify Him in what He has done. This puts an end to all of our self-glorification where we try to praise ourselves and declare ourselves holy by what we have done and what we have accomplished. This also puts an end to all self-justification. We do not need a man-made system to forgive us our sins. You see, we cannot pardon ourselves. Only God can pardon. We can't excuse our sins. Only God can remove them. This is the teaching of the gospel, that our self-righteousness is put to an end. Our self-glorification is put to an end. Our self-justification is all put to an end that the glory is properly given to Jesus, that the righteousness of Jesus is declared to be ours and given to us. And we receive this by faith, that the justification, that is the pardoning of all of our guilt, is given to us for the sake of Jesus, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reflects on these words in Philippians chapter 3. Now, Paul writes to the baptized and he says this, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, remember what Paul is addressing are those super apostles who are bragging about their achieved righteousness according to the law. Now, Paul is saying that he is zealous for the law as a Jew, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. So Paul continues and he goes on and he says this, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Notice how the Apostle Paul reflects on these words, that he desires to have a righteousness that is not his own, not a righteousness that comes by the law, but instead a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. That is a righteousness from God. And notice that Paul says that he desires to know Christ. It is in the knowledge of Jesus, the suffering servant, that he is justified. So that righteousness is the knowledge of Christ. It is an imputed righteousness. For Jesus is the righteous one, the servant of Yahweh. In fact, this is how the New Testament referred to Jesus in, for instance, Acts chapter 3 that they had denied the Holy and Righteous One, and instead they had asked for a murderer to be granted. So they crucified Jesus, the Righteous One, the one who had no guilt. Yet they condemned him because of our sin. Or later on in Acts chapter 7, you have these words, "Which, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Again, in both of these places, in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, the righteous one is the one who was murdered. He is the one who was rejected by his own and handed over to death. In fact, even in Acts chapter 22, Ananias, who baptized Paul, says this, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then this is where Ananias says, Rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. You see, the name of Jesus is Yahweh, Yahweh's salvation. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is Yahweh. But he is Yahweh incarnate, the one who comes to save us, the one who comes to be the Lamb that bears our sin to be our Savior. This is what the baptizer said in the Jordan. When he pointed out Jesus and said, Behold, look and see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, going back to Isaiah chapter 53, we pick up at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now here's the therefore. This is because of the innocent suffering and death. That because of that, his spoils are divided. 
the spoils that Jesus himself has by victory. This is the possessions of Jesus. Jesus is the stronger man who plunders the strong man, that is, Satan himself, that he takes the possessions of Satan and he reclaims them for God, that he takes the nations that have been deceived and they become his inheritance. For instance, in Psalm chapter 2, the father says to the son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Or in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes and says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, he's the one who justifies. He's the one who makes righteous. He's the one that reconciles, and he's the one that atones for sin. So that being justified by his grace, we might also become heirs according to the hope of eternal life that he is the heir, and by adoption, we become fellow heirs with him. As St. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, that when we've been baptized, we've been clothed with Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. For he is the one who divides the spoils with us. He takes the possessions, the inheritance, and by grace, he gives it to the church. Yet notice in this passage that not only do we have this understanding that he will divide the portion with the many, and again, the many means the multitude, it doesn't mean a few or just some, that we also have the understanding that he was numbered with the transgressors. Like we have in Luke chapter 22. Jesus says, I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he quotes from this passage. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for it was written about me, and it has its fulfillment. And this is when Jesus was with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. And this is when he was talking about having swords and going into the garden. And this was the response of the disciples saying, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. That in reference to this passage, that he would be numbered with the transgressors, that you would have his disciples in the garden, that you would have him hang upon the cross with the sinners, one on his left and one on his right, that he makes intercession for the transgressors, that it's God's desire to populate heaven with sinners, sinners that have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Now, one more note here that when we talk about the many, again, we need to understand that the many means the multitude. It is in contradistinction to a few. We need to be very clear. Many does not mean not all people. (laughs) Many means a multitude. You see, you cannot just take the scripture and distort it or twist it to make it to mean anything that you want that if you wanted it to say that he only died for some, he only died for the elect, or he only died for a few, 
Well, then the scripture would say that. <laughs> you see, it doesn't say a few. It says many. A few is exactly the opposite of many. A few is not many at all. But the importance here to understand is he dies for the multitudes, for the masses, that this is the multitude of humanity. For Jesus is the one mediator between God and man, that he is the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Not the sins of some people or just a few, but of many. For instance, again, looking back at Isaiah chapter 2, when we have that understanding of the many and the multitude and it meaning all of humanity, we see that in the promise of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is for humanity. So in Isaiah 2, it reads, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come, and say, Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, come to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go the Torah and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Now again, remember in this passage it says both, in Hebrew parallelism, that it is for all the nations will flow. So all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come. Again, that word many doesn't mean some or just a few. It means, well, many a multitude, a vast number of people. Or again, in Daniel chapter 12, many of those who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now here in Daniel chapter 12, again, it is very clear that many means many. It means a multitude. But notice here specifically in Daniel 12, you have some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. Those are the two destinations of the many. The many being the multitude of humanity. So we're not talking about some of humanity will rise from the dust. We're talking about many. The multitude of humanity will rise from the dust. But then there's a clear distinction that some of them will go to everlasting life and others will go to everlasting contempt. Or again, in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26, Jesus says, This is my blood of the testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now again, the many being the masses, the multitude, all of humanity. Not just some, not just the elect, not a limited number, but an unlimited number. Again, that's what many means, a multitude. It's the opposite of a limited number. It's an unlimited number. Or also in Hebrews chapter 9, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, he bears the sins of many. It is 
of a multitude. He takes the sins of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes all the sins away. He doesn't take some of the sins away or just a small number of sins away or just certain sins, but he's the lamb that takes the sin of the world away. And then when he does this, he becomes the one who is the high priest to make intercession, to intercede for us. He is the one mediator between man and God. And of course, that understanding of man being humanity. Thus, Paul writes to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 2, saying that the man Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Being that one mediator between God and men, okay, he is that one man who is the mediator for all mankind, all humanity, a ransom for all. Or in Hebrews chapter 9, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a New Testament so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the First Testament. He is that one mediator, the one who dies for all. Now we turn our attention to Isaiah 54. But noting that in Isaiah 53 had opened with the words saying that who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Well, now that that question of meditation, that question of lament is asked about the people of God being earthly Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem who rejected her king, crucified her king. Who's going to believe this? They didn't believe it. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They viewed him as smitten and stricken by God. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Again, therefore, being justified by faith in Christ, we now have peace with God. We now have access to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And the fact and the function of the crucifixion, the suffering of Jesus was for us, for our sins, for our salvation. And just like in Isaiah 53, where you have this weakness, the weakness of God being displayed in the crucifixion, Yet it is God who is hidden in these things. And the eyes of faith hear the voice of God in promise. Likewise, in chapter 54, now you you shift gears to something else. You shift gears to the image of a woman who has no children. So your eyes behold a woman who is barren, but yet the eyes of faith hear the promise of God. Hear the promise that there will be many 
children, a multitude of offspring. And so in Isaiah 54, 1, it begins by saying this, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Now, why are these words spoken to us? Well, in Isaiah 53, we clearly have the passion of the Christ, that he was rejected by his own people. Yet the message of the cross will go first to the Jews, and then it will go to the Gentiles. That the Torah of God, the instruction of God on who he is and what he does, will go out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That the message will go to the nations, the Gentiles, to the Goyim, that they may be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Martin Luther, the Blessed Reformer, notes that in the previous chapter 53, we heard about the king and his work. And then now in chapter 54, we hear about his kingdom and his fruit. But Luther wants us to note that just as Christ suffered and was rejected, so too the church will suffer and be rejected by this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Redeemer Theological Academy. For more episodes or to leave comments about this show, please visit our website, RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Again, that's RedeemerTheologicalAcademy.org. Thanks for listening, and may our Redeemer Jesus Christ continue to be your life and salvation, your hope and your peace.